0: Welcome to Saltgrass, a show about how local communities can engage with the climate crisis at a grassroots level. My name is Ali Hanley. In this episode, we're exploring how suburban neighborhoods can become havens for both humans and wildlife in a climate-affected world. Cassia Reid and Ada Nano are both ecologists who are members of the Castlemaine Institute, which is a local climate-focused hub of activity. They've been developing a program called Wilderhoods that helps neighbours come together, learn about the land they're on and how to turn their nature strips and yards into places that birds, bees and lizards would wanna hang out in. This is all while connecting with neighbours and creating climate resilient spaces that work for humans, plants and animals. I caught up with Ada and Cassia in Cassia's backyard late in 2022. We sat under a tree and at one point, a butterfly landed on Cassia and at another point, She was the recipient of some bird droppings from one of the many birds who decided to hang out in the tree above us. You will hear neighborhood sounds of vehicles, birds and wind in this episode. We did our very best not to include the sound of her neighbor using his chainsaw and with a snipper. Lucky for us, he only worked in short bursts that day, so we paused until it was finished. As much as including that would have been a much truer audio portrait of her neighborhood, it would have been very hard for you to hear us talking. Before I share that chat with you, I want to acknowledge that this episode of Saltgrass and all of the activities that we describe have happened on Jara country, the home of the Dja Dja They have been ecosystem guardians and custodians of this land for countless generations and continue to lead the way and generously share their wisdom on how to live better here. I give thanks to them and honour elders past and present. Always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Salt. Salt. Salt Salt Salt, salt. salt.
1: Grassroots Grass.
0: Grassroot. Gras, Grassroots Grassroots
1: grassroot,
0: grassroot. Salt of the Earth People Grassroots Change Saltgrass Listen to all episodes of Saltgrass on your podcast app or at saltgrasspodcast.com in 2022, Cassia and Ada ran the Pilot Wilderhood Program in the West End of Castlemaine. They put an offer out to that neighbourhood and a collection of people raised their hands to participate. This group then attended the workshops Cassia and Ada ran and subsequently took the first steps towards enacting what they had learned by having an ongoing series of working bees on a different person's property each month. And they're still going at it. They had one just recently. I went along to one of these working bees in late 2022. And at the end of the day, I sat in my car and recorded this. I've just come back from a Wilderhood working bee. It was actually really delightful. We were there from two o'clock in the afternoon to five. And we spent some time chipping away at some lawn and weeding around some existing natives that had just sort of sprung up there, which is really cool and then we mulched it with a bunch of straw and one of the members of the group said you know i've got some diggers speedwell in my garden we could just bring some cuttings and ended up dashing home which was just around the corner (laughs) and digging up a few little bits and pieces so that they could bring it back to the place we were working on And, and we planted them and it was wonderful we got a fair bit done which is always the case when you have a group of people working together You get so much more done than you could on your own and it feels easy. (laughs) Part of it is because you're chatting with people as you're working and so you're not just focused on the labour of it and you've got people to ask questions of and bounce ideas around with so you're not dwelling on what to do. Yeah, it's just that conviviality of being amongst lovely people and I looked at the group at one point and I thought, oh my gosh, this is just so beautiful. And it was a beautiful sunny day with a lovely cool breeze it was perfect conditions thanks very much weather but we had retirees and we had young parents and we had young children every stage of life was represented there we had these two most gorgeous very cute toddlers also a tiny puppy who was the cutest with razor sharp teeth of course but I don't mind being needled if the needler is very very cute yeah it was it was really delightful and It was nice having cassia there because she could answer all the questions anyone had about what plant is this and is this worth keeping or should we consider that one to dig out and it was nice to see the growing community of people some of them didn't know each other very well at all but gradually across the afternoon they're just chatting or listening to other people chat and getting to know each other and you can see that over time a group like that if they keep meeting will just develop a nice little community you know you just know your neighbors a little bit better and you know someone, you might be walking your dog down the street and you know them well enough to wave now instead of just walking past and trying not to look nosy as you look at their garden or whatever. You know, it's, it's a lovely thing. Community building. And someone brought out a big bag full of lemons and said, please take some of these. <laughs> Marg had baked a ginormous, beautiful lemon cake and offered us cake and tea with some yogurt on the side. And it was all just really nice. It was really nice. Yeah. Lovely people. So I first heard of Cassia Reid as one of the originators of the Climate Flags movement. She, her sister Anna and their friend Carrie Calcraft, who you might remember from the Deep Ecology episode in Season 2, got together and started this movement back in 2019. And I so clearly remember the speech she gave at the launch of a Climate Flags event where she spoke eloquently about feeling such grief and kind of stuckness about the climate crisis and how starting Climate Flags was a true medicine for that feeling, how doing something, doing anything, was better than doing nothing. So when we got together in Cassia's backyard, to talk about wilderhoods, I asked her about her background as an ecologist and wondered if perhaps that led her to both climate flags and developing the wilderhoods program with Ada.
2: It was endlessly about the ecology of loss and what I was working on was habitat loss, how to preserve the little bit that's here. And when I had my first child, it was all my work also was well outside of where I lived. There was nothing happening in my urban garden in Melbourne. My urban environment was sort of stretched away from there and I just wanted to do something that was I guess more generative for myself and for where I lived and I started thinking much more about green spaces in urban environments and I started cultivating a garden with many more indigenous plants and just paying more and more attention to who was living in the neighbourhood other than the people and Moving to Castlemaine there was just more of a sense of my garden is an island essentially for wildlife. What would it mean to really support wildlife and do work across the urban environment and connect with other people in the urban environment and connect up habitat through that. And so I guess the Wilderhoods came out of that idea of wanting to do something local. Climate flags is part of that story of Wilderhoods and vice versa and I guess just really working at the forefront of recognizing the ecological degradation that's happening and the force of climate change that's overlaying on all the other pressures on our natural systems and hot summer nights that's sort of the time you lie awake fretting and feeling anxious about the future and the future of your children and the future of the natural places you love and there's this burning desire to do more and act more and feeling really stretched as well and also at that point a few years before i guess the strikes for climate the student strikes happened it just felt like there was this terrible silence and i felt like i had this so it was before the up. yeah 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 and but you feel like you're the barbecue stopper, wanting to talk about climate yeah. change. And you bring so much pain to it as well. Yeah. And I start, my sister was feeling the same, my sister Anna, and we spoke about what we could do. And I think it was initially about gathering sort of letters and people writing letters about how they were feeling. And then thinking about a kind of creative outlet for that, a creative outlet for people to start talking and communicating. And then thinking about, how could you display the letters so they reached other people? And then started thinking about flags and prayer flags and this idea of the prayer flag and that these letters were like a prayer. And then thinking about putting them together was a way to get people in the community doing something creative together, you know, working with their hands and conversations could start happening naturally when you were doing this work, so we gathered sheets from op shops and cut them up and had these sewing bees and, and people could start talking about climate change together and then we would go out into the town and set up tables and just give people in the town an opportunity to write a message about climate change. And we would sew them up into these banners and we ended up putting them up in windows around the town, I think for the arts festival, the Tasmanian State Festival. They also flew during the Fringe Festival as well. Our first flags were sewn around the time of the first strikes and we flew them at the strikes. We got some big bamboo poles and they were sort of fluttering above the students, which was really lovely That's amazing. So another really powerful part of the project was we took a photo of everybody with their flag and we made a gallery. We made a website and a gallery. And you can just look into the face of each person holding their message. And so we made a website to expand that and to put the activities on a map. And then we just sort of burnt out, I guess. And so the website's sitting there and it's kind of like an offering that's just waiting there for climate action. It could expand into any climate action, could be located on a map with a story of what people are doing to connect people up with what's happening in their local area. But, yeah, we've still got the flags and they still fly at events, but we haven't had the capacity to keep going out at the moment and running workshops. And
0: And I think with the pandemic, all the public events kind of stopped. It's probably a big part of it. So many things just sort of lost momentum because of the pandemic, didn't they? But then you got busy with wilderhoods
2: (laughs) as well. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. And I I think for me, climate action often is about alignment with What you can maintain and sustain in your life, like I just see that constant pattern of throwing yourself in and it's endless what needs to be done and exhausting and can be really depressing and people often burn out. Burnout is
0: really real in the climate movement, isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And it's a very dark and dire kind of space to work in. And if you don't give yourself a break or pace yourself. And it is endless. It is one of those
2: and feels more and more urgent the more <laughs> yeah. you do there's more urgency and, and every time one yeah. of those IPCC
0: reports comes out everyone's panicking online and I have to like switch off because I actually yeah. I'm already working in the zone That's and right. I can't take any more on and I'm like I can't. the panic doesn't help me mm-hmm. I actually need to do the consistent work the rest mm. of the year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yes
2: yeah, so I think that's where both Climate Flags and Wilderhoods, it's like Climate Flags was connecting up with people I hardly got to see who I really cared about, to spend time together sewing or doing events out in the town. It was creative, it was really enriching. And Wilderhoods, too, like time in the garden, is so therapeutic and bringing wildlife into the life of me and my family and people who visit here through the garden, that's just so nourishing. Yeah, so th- there's that looking for that alignment in what your skills are but also just what nourishes you back. Here come the lorikeets. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I also think both of them yeah. offer, as you were saying before, you don't want to be that person at the barbecue who's like, it's really serious, guys. Mm. You know, <laughs> You don't want to be that person because a lot of people are feeling that. But to talk about that endlessly actually doesn't do anything. Yeah. But to offer an activity people can do that helps build and bridge communities and bring people together in a constructive and creative way is is a beautiful thing to do, I think.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, I think that was another thing was this sense of paralysis lying there at night just feeling so frightened and so paralysed about where to begin and finding projects that can continue Continue to evolve and as people join they can help evolve it with you and find a place in it and find a pathway into action yeah. So how did
0: your urban concept based in suburban Melbourne evolve once you'd moved out here you said you realized that your garden out here in Castlemaine was sort of an island or an oasis for wildlife talk me through how that developed into developing a whole program and trying to get community involved in wilderhoods.
2: I think initially there was just wanting to teach people about what they could do in their own gardens and what are the habitat elements they could add to their garden, but then wanting to find a way for neighbourhoods to work together so that individual animals and species, that they need larger areas than a garden and how can you kind of extend that across the neighbourhood. So I think the idea really just came into my head about making it at a neighbourhood scale and then talking to Ada about what would that look like. How could you have a neighbourhood working together to come up with a restoration work within the neighbourhood, create habitat in the neighbourhood that a neighbourhood would welcome and enjoy and appreciate. I think people can be really opposed to, say, a bush garden because they find it scrappy or they're worried about wildfire risk and snakes and snakes. <laughs> so I guess we were just thinking a lot about what are the barriers to habitat creation within a neighbourhood and how can you work in an area for people to think about what would work, what, what's the sort of maximum that they could introduce into the neighbourhood that still respects that particular place and the needs and desires of those particular people. So I mm. think that's where it came from.
1: Well, we met like a couple of years ago and we met up with Jess Drake, who you've interviewed, and we put in a submission together for the Mount Alexander Council declaring a climate emergency about urban habitat and worrying about tree death because it was at that sort of really dry, droughty time. And I come from New South Wales and on the New England tableland and at that time the drought up there was so severe, like they lost just swathes of native plants and bush in, in the gorges and it was really distressing. I felt like a really, I don't know, it just was feeling it. a few years ago, there was this really
0: dry and hot and tree death and we had the giant fish kill because the rivers t- didn't have mm, enough flow yeah. like there was this accumulation of environmental factors that felt really mm. severe mm. yeah on that... the dry end as opposed to this year where everything's in flood that's right <laughs> drowning yeah. Yeah. yeah
1: yeah and I remember because we met at a cafe and talked about what we were going to put in that submission and I remember Cass bringing up wildhoods then I guess we just started meeting here in her garden and talking about it
2: The other thing was I was doing some work on trees for urban cooling and shading and thinking about green spaces and how important they are with climate change and heat waves. And I was doing some work with a colleague, Meredith Cosgrove, sort of modelling tree survival in future climate in 2050. Thinking about climate change, it's about creating habitat for people and for wildlife at the same time and I saw in my own garden during that really hot, dry, intense time that birds were actually moving into the garden to forage because this is where some of the water was in the landscape. I was watering my garden. There was insects, there was seed, and there is a refuge here for them. And you can also create a refuge for people at the same time. Cool spaces that we all need. So I think that was part of the story too, thinking Mm. about climate change in the urban environment it's a it's a win-win yeah yeah
0: because so often the story is that it's humans against the environment like we're the ones destroying everything we're doing all this damage it's us it's us it's us yeah but this idea that you've got is that actually we can create habitat and create a gift for Mm -hmm. the ecosystems Mm. (laughs) you know no matter how small your plot is even if you've just got some I don't know, pot plants. like Absolutely, a balcony. Yeah, you could give some bees some flowers to rummage through. Yep. Yeah, well, I'm on a
1: block. We're living in a tiny house that's about to be subdivided and we haven't really planted many natives because we're going to build. I've just put in some comfrey and some salvias and, yeah, just watching the eastern spinebills been feeding on the comfrey flowers at the minute. The blue-banded bees coming into the salvias you can create habitat. Just with one plant. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Or even a resource that might not be available in the bush. So it's mm-hmm. enabling the survival of maybe individuals or populations
2: mm-hmm. through harder times. So, yeah. And I guess the project, in terms of supporting people to come out of paralysis and to support people who are in grief about the world or feeling incredibly anxious. It gives people something really concrete that they can just be doing right at their back door. So I think that's been a big part of our conversation as well, hasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And also recognizing, you know, the climate crisis isn't just about carbon emissions. It's about our disconnect from the natural world and It's how can we give people points of connection right where they live? Many of us rarely get a chance to drive a long way out to a national park. It Mm. can be a luxury to have that sort of nature connection, but what can you do, like, right round your back door that Mm. gives you those moments of wonder and connection and and taps you into seasonal change and lives outside human lives as Mm. well. The the joy in that.
1: Mm. Yeah, we've got one activity in our workshop series that's about that just inviting participants to go and sit in their garden for 10 minutes or on the verge or in a park and just observe what they see and how they feel before and afterwards. And yeah, we've had some pretty lovely responses to that in terms of what people have actually found living in their backyard so what they've observed yeah. in that time yeah. yeah from ants or you know native bees or little lizard but also how that's made them feel and how sometimes it's been a profound experience for people to just stop and yeah be still enough to observe what's going on around them and mm.
2: yeah I've been teaching gardens for wildlife over in Hepburnshire, and just getting people early on in the course to sit for ten minutes. This idea that Ada brought to the project of the sit spot for ten minutes, and it's profound for people. It, it always sort of surprises me, but then yeah, I'm rushing around too and don't often take that time to sit. But but my last class. An older man said, I do a two hour walk every day in the bush, but you know what, I've never stopped and sat and just looked and it's completely changed how I see things. Just that quietening and slowing and yeah.
0: No destination, instead of like going from A to B through the bush and getting it kilometers yeah. in or whatever you're doing your steps <laughs> <That's so exciting>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, well, even when I'm walking I'm often walking the dog and so I'm focused on oh don't chase that kangaroo come back here mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> you know yeah. oh there's a dog coming I better you know manage her and you know it's a really different experience to just absorb what's around you yeah and mm. a lot of people you know mindfulness has been all the rage for quite some time and it, there's definite benefits to it but a lot of people struggle with meditation but if your challenge is to sit and actually just with your eyes open and look at what's happening. Mm. It's a kind of meditation without being too mystical. Do you know what I mean? Like Absolutely. it's an it's a, it's a attention giving exercise. Yeah but it gives you something to do. (laughs) Yep,
2: Mm. And the tuning in with different senses, that's what we encourage as well. And I just noticed that with myself, I'm very visually oriented and and I'm often looking at the detail on the ground as I'm walking around. And then if I remind myself, oh, look up and, oh, wow, there's birds. It's not just flowers on the ground. And and then, oh, I use my ears. Oh, wow, there is so many people speaking right now. And Mm. I might have been in my head for like 15-20 minutes and then I just suddenly tune into another sense and a growing awareness of who else is in my neighbourhood that I'm oh sharing gosh. it with Animal with wife. Animal <laughs> wise, I always talk about <laughs> the animal neighbours that's who I mean
0: <laughs> Not that you can hear your neighbours conversation but those guys behind yeah. us are chirping oh, yeah. relentlessly <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, no that's great. And so talk me through a little bit you've recently done sort of a pilot project in the mm. West End where you invited people to come along and participate and then you guided them through several mm-hmm. stages what's that looked like how did you format that
2: so we had in the end four workshops it was going to be three and COVID and ross river virus <laughs> extended it i got ross river this year yeah moving south with climate change got it in Castlemaine. main yeah so we had people come for they were two to three hours the workshops and we took them through this process, we sort of came up with a whole cyclical process for Wilderhoods, starting with foundational conversations. It's really important getting the neighbourhood together, that like everyone comes from a place of respect for everyone else and what everyone values, so starting conversations about what people value in their own garden, maybe someone really values their grandmother's roses you know maybe people just need something really simple and easy to manage and and maybe there are the people who love a bush garden that other people are finding a bit challenging but just to really hear what people care about feels a really important foundation mm. and then talking about the place quite deeply about where we're working so we'd do a story of place understanding the indigenous people here and their history here and the history of invasion here and then the transformation through that of the people and land and, and through the and gold fauna, fauna, rush through, through the gold rush yeah yep. mm. and then understanding the geology vegetation, what are the main drivers for why this place is like it is. So these, this is yeah. like a three hour session? Or is this Yeah, this, like, this was the first three hour session. This sounds like it could be session. like a
0: whole course at university.
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> 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 so we a lot in, <laughs> we? That's what we found, we all of it. Like, oh my gosh, yeah.
0: yeah. And where did you hold it? Did you go to someone's house or- We were in the West End Hall,
2: which was lovely. Mm. Yeah, it was Very such beautiful. a nice space to get everybody together in. Mm. And we also talked about the history of the urban environment as well. Yeah, what this place looked like and what it's become and then gave people a little story of what it could become and I showed a photo story of my sister's house block that was a paddock house located onto it and now has an incredible wildlife-friendly garden on it that's thriving. That's sort of an mm. inspiring start. Yeah. And then we gave people a satellite map of their area and asked them to go away and record the animals that they saw on their walks or in their garden. Mm and other natural values, maybe big old trees with hollows or the creek. Patches of remnant vegetation or planted natives. And then the second workshop, that was a really lovely one, it went really well. We printed out the satellite map really big and gave people little stickers and they could locate all their animal observations and record that and also outline important native gardens or just any corridors or waterways or important natural places that would support animals. Yeah, and I think it was was
1: empowering because we also looked at the records of animals from the Atlas of Living Australia and we printed those out and then we had another list from Margaret yeah, of observations she's made in the... West End area and then yeah we write down all the species that people had observed and collectively the number of species was comparable to what had already been recorded there were only a few species that they'd missed in a way yeah yep. and I think that was really empowering for people because mm-hmm. most people kind of feel like oh, it requires some specialist knowledge or yeah, something yeah we've given them some photo sheets we hadn't necessarily got them to go to species level but they'd where they could they did and then there were species groups so yeah it was pretty great. Bats, everything. People yeah. came back with microbat populations.
2: And, and those yeah. conversations were beautiful around the satellite maps as people excitedly shared, you know, oh, this is a roosting site for an owl or... Yeah, and know, I some people had seen the same stories. things
0: yep. and they would have been so excited
2: saying, I saw that one too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's moving from your garden to my garden. Yeah. and it's
0: better mm. than Pokemon Go, come yeah. on.
2: <laughs> yeah. 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 And hearing about the
1: trees, someone had estimated were like, River red gums, at least like,
2: five hundred years old. Yeah,
1: someone had got someone in to assess them, and they had
2: hollows, and there were lots of owls in that street because of the hollows. So yeah. it was really lovely. Ada and I then put all of those observations together, and we made a map for the neighbourhood that they will then keep adding to. But we collated it all, and then we moved from that into knowledge sharing about how can you create more habitat. What are the elements that you can add to a garden or a neighbourhood that would make a real difference to wildlife and an opportunity for people to really share their local knowledge and skills about their own garden experience, their own restoration experience down by the creek and that really started drawing out what were the skills already there in the neighbourhood.
0: who did you find was attracted to come along were there people who had a pretty blank slate garden and they actually wanted it to be something that would help them establish a garden or were there people who had really good gardens already and they just wanted to fill the gaps or make sure they're on the right track who was attracted to be part of it
2: I think there was the full spectrum there was a full spectrum there were people who had very European and very simple gardens with not much more
0: lots of grass to mow and lots of grass to mow <laughs> yeah.
2: and there were some people with really established native gardens who yeah. were excited to just yeah keep growing it as habitat and mm. connect with others in the neighborhood yeah. yeah
1: definitely yeah it's also like about people's gardens but it's also the common spaces I suppose in the neighbourhood, like. The, we say verges?
2: Nature strip. Nature yeah. strip.
1: Nature strip. <laughs> strip. And a part. Yeah. The fits so, in between. Yeah. yeah. Places where people can come together and work. You might work together in each other's gardens or you might come together on those more public spaces.
2: I think a core group that we really missed were the renters and I think that really bothers me about the project that they didn't feel like they had ownership enough
0: of the land they were living on that they could establish yeah. stuff for or that they'd want to invest in it even.
2: That's right. Yeah. I think I've been a renter a long time and created so many gardens that you go by 6 months later and it's gone again. Mm. Yeah. But I think that is part of the future of wilderhoods. It's really finding those public spaces as well. So renters mm. who really do want to be getting their hands dirty and doing this work, they can feel like it's got a life beyond.
0: And even the pot plant level.
2: Absolutely. You know, giving people some
0: really strong examples of how pots can create a gorgeous little ecosystem. Yeah. <laughs> mm. yeah and yeah, go with you. Beds. Yeah, working yeah. beds. Yeah. So when did you start actually going to people's houses?
2: Well, there was just a little bit more of a process after that, oh, yeah. which was then with all that understanding of how to create habitat, understanding who else was living in the neighbourhood, what animals, and then looking at the satellite maps and thinking, where are the green spaces that we want to work on? What's the type of habitat that this neighbourhood could really hold maybe it's a neighbourhood we really couldn't add more trees to we're worried about fire or you know thinking about what it could hold what do we value then coming up with a brainstorming a sort of a vision for the neighbourhood so in the west end we also wanted to just help people identify a first project that could really get off the ground that everyone's busy so what's the first thing that could of get the ball rolling that people could commit to so they decided on grassland gardens on nature strips and so grassland gardens for pollinators so as a group they decided on that
0: yeah and then you were able to go okay great oh next week i'll bring you a bunch of stuff about that
2: yeah i think that actually came at the end of the project so in the future i think that would be the the next step is okay so what does this neighborhood need to move with their project. We had an expert workshop at the end to support people. That was Frances Chincotta came in, who owns the Newstead Native Nursery, and she ran a workshop on propagation. So that was to support the neighbourhood in being able to get plants to put in the ground without a cost. And, oh, that was people's absolute favourite thing to learn from Frances, Mm. that (laughs) real hands-on skill and local knowledge was incredible and then people decided okay so what's this going to look like let's make a commitment to once a month go and meet on somebody's nature strip this is just a doable thing every month we all get together on a nature strip for two hours and maybe we'll weed out the weeds if there's already some native grasses there or maybe we'll dig and put in some plants and and we'll go and learn from each other as we move around the neighborhood Mm. so and I guess one clear
1: bit of feedback from that workshop series for people was to incorporate more doing as we go along. And I think that's so really- To balance
0: the theory and the doing yeah. a
1: bit more. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's where we're going to try and head yes. in our next workshop series. Is just, yeah, how do we do both? Because there's so many elements of what we did in the workshop that were really great and people loved. And there's only so much time that people have to dedicate to that sort of series. So how do we kind of incorporate both? So, yeah.
2: I just got pooed on by a lorikeet, which, oh, uh, a musk lorikeet. Oh, it's Thank sitting right above there.
0: us. Oh, there's a couple of them. Oh, God. <laughs> so sweet. <laughs> yeah, funny. OK, so you guys actually, what you were offering the West End group, the people who signed up, was that initial three or four sessions that gave them that groundwork and introduced them to each other and then did you encourage them to activate together and stay together and work on each other's properties or did that just come up from them it
2: was in our last conversation about Okay, so what do you want to create in this neighbourhood? How are you going to create it? What are the roles that people want to take on? And when we started talking about roles, people were like, oh, no, 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 I haven't got time for that. So it's like, okay, well, let's just have the first one and just set a date. So that's where we left it was the first one and someone put their hand up to send out that email. And now... Each month someone will send out an email and it sort of happens organically each month without anyone having to take a huge burden. Mm. And this one coming up there, doing cuttings and...
1: Propagating as well, so, yeah. As well as the weeding and yeah, yeah.
2: I should say that first workshop series could happen because it was funded by Lodden and Mallee Adapt, which was a project out of DELT funding product, projects around adaptation. And so now we get an opportunity to run another pilot and yeah, develop it from what we've learned with the first one. So we've got funding from WWF Innovate to Regenerate, and that will also enable us to really develop tools that will help people make a decision about what do they want to create in their neighbourhood and consider things like fire risk. How much habitat can you create and where can you put it without increasing your fire risk. Yeah. And but also how do you design a plant community that's going to work for you and for wildlife, a plant design tool. People can work through quite simply and come up with a bit of a, a plan. Yeah, great.
1: Because we've got a few themes like the grassland or a shrubland or a woodland with grassy understory <laughs> yeah. or tiny forests. Yeah. Because people are kind of a bit inspired by tiny forests. So yeah. the idea is that people kind of come up with a theme and the theme might include, well, their planting for their neighbourhood might include all of those elements or maybe they want a big corridor of shrubs through the yes. neighborhood to provide habitat for small birds that small birds are in a bit of trouble for some species and need extra habitat
0: and yes yeah. yeah and it would be interesting also not just the habitat but how do people put water out or have food and stuff that's appropriate i know a lot of people who put dishes of water out for lizards and and things but not everyone does and not everyone knows how to or how to not let bees drown in it or
2: a cat safe bird bath yeah like, birds are really vulnerable when they're yeah. drinking and they have a bath and they're preening and wet and mm. how do you keep them safe when they come in for that water so you're not actually a a population sink where they're disappearing into your garden <laughs> and never to return.
0: The cats would figure it out pretty quickly. Yeah. <laughs> There's a steady source of food at that water bowl. Yes,
2: absolutely. <laughs> Teaching Gardens for Wildlife over in Hepburn, I picked up the course from Brian Bainbridge, who's the biodiversity officer over at Hepburn Shire.
0: Did he develop the course?
2: He developed the particular style of course over in Hepburn, but Gardens for Wildlife is something that happens across Victoria. It's a great movement, it started in Knox City Council and local resident working with the local council to support residents to create habitat for wildlife and how to train up people in the community to be mentors to then go out to other residents and teach them how to make a wildlife friendly garden and so each council area has its own sort of way of training up the mentors yeah yeah it's really great so yeah Brian developed this course also with Jill Teschendorf who's written a book called Grow Wild and it's about habitat gardening in the Hepburn Shire. Anyway, one of the key things that they come up with is the Habitat Mandala that a mentor can take out into somebody's garden and walk around the garden and identify elements that you could easily add, elements that are there for wildlife, elements that are missing, and what could you add? And it's just this lovely mandala, rather than getting a long list of notes, you can just work around this mandala and make your notes on it, and the mandala just has things on it like a cat safe bird bath. Have you got different vegetation layers? Have you got the the canopy, the shrub layer, the ground layer? If they're not there, which ones could you add? Have you got rocks for lizards? Brian calls them lizard lounges. Lizard lounges. <laughs> uh, i <I'm> cute just <laughs> no. Yeah, Nectar Little for tracks, pollinators. Yeah. Nest boxes or nest. Yeah, hollows. Or spiky shrubs for nesting birds. Mulch that is full of insects and larvae that then feed the food web, feed the birds, feed the lizards, feed the frogs. Bare um, ground, bare patches for our native bees. Yeah, to nest. So Ada and I took the mandala and we keep adding to it and it will just keep evolving, won't it, mm. as it moves through different courses and with different people. It's really nice because it's a really accessible starting point, so people who also feel like they don't know a lot about wildlife gardening, and just with a little bit of training, they can take it out and oh, spot what to add in someone else's garden. Oh, and a pond, <laughs> yep. I'd love to have a pond. Yeah. Mm come and look at the pond here. They're oh, so easy to put in. I'd love to. And within three months of putting in our pond, we had a frog cacophony on a rainy, warm, wow, rainy night. And great. then there was the spawn the next day. And You don't have to worry about mosquitoes. I love that question. Cause if you put in a couple of Murray rainbow fish, they eat mosquito larvae and they don't eat frogs eggs. That's great. Never see them. So you don't put them in for having a delightful fish to watch. And you I just think. know they're there because there's no larvae in the pond. If larvae start appearing, then you need another fish. So
0: what's next for the wilderhoods? How, how
2: would you like to see it grow? That's that's another thing that WWF are really supporting us to think through, not only trial it again and develop our ideas and our tools, but how do we sustainably take it out? So part of what we do in this next phase is we'll have some round tables with organisations who might be interested in taking on wilderhoods and using it and sharing it. So we've been talking to Regen Melbourne, who are looking at a regenerative street project and could wilderhoods feed into that? We'll also talk to Gardens for Wildlife because it's very complementary. We're looking at that neighbourhood scale and how these gardens can all link up and make a decision together about what they want to do. So maybe it could kind of come in supported by councils and give another training to mentors where they could go into streets and run the project in streets. And ideally, it feels really important to us that it's all publicly accessible and the tools are publicly accessible. And yeah, I'd really love to see it online, the tools and maybe some training as well so it wouldn't have to be you guys every time going
0: out and doing those first few workshops with people? People might be able to self-facilitate? Is that the kind yeah, of goal? Yeah, or, or, or?
2: Maybe, maybe we could, you know, run an online course and we could have 10 people from different regions and we could train them up and then provide them with the tools and then Not they the could start running with it. The mentoring model again. Yeah. yeah. And, and another important aspect is just how to connect people up with I guess local experts you know the plants and animals and there's lots of online spaces where we could sort of direct people like iNaturalist you can put up a photo of a moth and a moth expert will tell you what it is within the hour and your local nurseries and yeah finding pathways online for people to connect up as well feels something we need to explore
1: yeah Oh, that was another thing we did in our workshop was this exercise called Thinking Like an Animal. We just printed out stuff from the internet on different animals like the shingle lizard, the blue-banded bee...
0: And a blue wren. And a blue
1: wren. And, you know, there's just information you could sheets. You have
0: had a blue tongue lizard, <laughs> a blue-banded <laughs> bee oh, and a blue wren. Oh, we <laughs> set up a, shame <laughs> <out there. laughs>
1: yeah, a shame. yeah, and we just, you know, we printed out a number of those sheets and people chose which one and we gave them some time to read those sheets and just highlight things about the animal needs like food, water, shelter, mating, dispersal. And yeah, then we went outside and had a discussion about it. So I guess the idea was to get people to think about all the needs of an animal and sort of put themselves into that animal's shoes. And then we stepped outside of the hall in the West End and talked about what habitat elements were there for the shingleback lizard and yeah it was very great and brought out some really lovely discussions about people who had them in their garden already and Someone
2: lost their stumpy tail, didn't they? Yeah, there was so much sadness, and they're really excited to think about what they could do to support the stumpy tails and see what was missing there for stumpy tails. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) I can tell you,
0: you could just—all you need is corrugated iron lying around (laughs) in sheets in your backyard. I've had like blue tongues living under those for years. Oh yeah, awesome.
1: (laughs) Well, I think the thing for her was like she read in that sheet that they mate for life, and she had a breeding pair, and one of them got run over and yeah so the idea that they made it for life but you know if one partner's lost they can find another partner and what could she do to really support them in a the garden by putting in a lizard, lizard lounge and lizard dating <laughs> service <laughs> dating service and a lounge Kindle for yeah so it's kind of good just seeing it if you just add those few elements invite something in that you want to see in your backyard
0: single shingles <laughs> <The> website <laughs> right. yeah. uh,
1: do you want to talk about how we, we, we want to run
2: the next one yeah. at my house <laughs> You've been I think we're running it in the street running directly oh, out of dad. my driveway <laughs> <laughs> which is really interesting for me because it's quite different thinking about your own neighbourhood I've got to say because yeah. you, you know it What's and all
0: specific neighbors yeah like not just a neighborhood isn't that nice but mm. <laughs> there's that person and that person <laughs> and
2: there's one neighbor who just hates waddles with expletives attached and oh. <laughs> there's others who just get so excited telling me about the a kidna that visited their little water bowl Aww. or so, such a mix here and so because I know the spectrum of people here I keep imagining how are we gonna yeah. hold this conversation and yeah carry it through yep. and
0: you're also but an feels... insider instead of an outsider mm-hmm. this time <laughs> yeah
2: and that's right I've got to come into it not being too attached to the outcome yeah <laughs> and I guess people not feeling any sense of guilt if They don't do anything or it doesn't go anywhere, or yeah, they don't want a neighbour kind of poking around looking over their fence to see if they've planted that (laughs) native grass bed that they talked about, you know. It feels really exciting because I think part of the work I'm really interested in doing is work where I live as well. Mm. Yeah, not always talking about out there.
0: So you might run a few more yourselves before you expand again to the online mentoring take yep. over the world model yep
2: absolutely <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah we'll be a second pilot and then we'll take over the world
1: mm. great but there's sort of elements to it that we see we can add beyond this project as well that we don't really have funding for or the time for that we feel like will be really important for people because a lot of people are wanting to create habitat or plant natives, but they don't know how or they've tried and it's failed. So we're talking about developing planting recipes and layouts so you might be able to just find one of these at the nursery and it has species and how many per square metre or how many in the area of your garden you want to plant. I think that's probably gonna be a really exciting next step.
0: Develop
2: some resources to share. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great. Mm. I like that idea. The Institute is working for regenerative economies, communities and landscapes. And there's there's a group of us who are collaborators and getting this little not-for-profit organisation off the ground. And I guess the other folk at the Institute have been involved in these wilderhood conversations all the way through and just really supported the concept, got behind it, helped us secure funding, Jodie newcomb has been huge and she's been part of developing the Wilderhood's ideas as well. It's really powerful just having this local workplace that sees the value in this work and keeps us going with it and has made it possible for us to actually earn a bit of an income while we develop this idea. Mm. I think probably wouldn't have happened without that support. Yeah, and wilderhoods is one of the Wararak initiatives. It started before Wararak but it fits so well within it and has come under that umbrella. That's really about creating community resilience and capacity to adapt to climate change through creating more resilient neighbourhoods that will support people and wildlife. But it's another avenue for people to work together, connect up and be able to support each other so we're more resilient to the hits that are coming.
0: There you go. That was Cassia Reed and Ada Nano talking about wilderhoods. Links to their project and several of the other things we spoke about in this conversation can be found on the episode page on the Saltgrass Podcast website. Don't forget to get your Saltgrass Ethical t-shirts, hoodies, stickers, posters and puzzles. There are new designs all the time so keep checking out the merch shop. You can find that of course at saltgrasspodcast.com and click through on the merch link. For those of you listening on the radio, please note that you can listen to all episodes of Saltgrass on your preferred podcasting app or at saltgrasspodcast.com. You can follow us on all the socials and you can subscribe to our email list to get reminders and updates about the show. This program was made possible with support from Main FM and the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. My name is Ali Hanley. Thanks for listening. salt, salt. Salt of the earth. Salt. 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 Grassroots. 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 Salt of the earth people. Grassroots change. Saltgrass. Listen to all episodes of Saltgrass on your podcast app or at saltgrasspodcast.com.